you can lay down your arms against God and God's image and people who are not like you. And you can join in with the, with the community of the rest of creation and, and the rest of humanity. Join hands, be simply human, and let's, let's figure out how we all want to live together anew. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Activist and author Lisa Sharon Harper spent three decades researching 10 generations of her family's story through DNA research, oral histories, interviews, and genealogical records. That research is the basis of her new book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It. She writes, to repair the world, we must first understand how the world broke. If the break was fundamentally spiritual and relational, the remedy must heal our souls and repair the way we relate to each other in the world. Belief shapes the world, but what shapes belief? Stories. I'm thankful that Lisa Sharon Harper agreed to share some of her stories on the Habit Podcast. Uh, Lisa Sharon Harper, I'm exceedingly glad that you have made time to join me on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so you, uh, uh, the same week that this podcast releases, uh, your new book releases, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a book really about story, right? Lost stories, reclaiming stories, false stories. Mm-hmm. And so you... You've spent the last 30 years uh, re, what's the word I'm looking for, putting back together the story of 10 generations of your family. Yes, that's right. And I think that, and there's still a lot to go actually, but I knew that this needed to be written now. Um, And I would say that reclaiming our story is another way to put it. Um, Mm -hmm. Reclaiming, in some ways, reclaiming America's story. Um, our family has been on this land since 1682, um, and in, in Virginia and Maryland. And um, as a result, the, our family has absorbed the impacts of all of those first race laws that came into being. And it's it's it was when I discovered that that I realized, whoa, there's something here, and yeah. there's something here not just for me but definitely for my for our descendants and my family but also for the world. I think that most of us don't they, we don't know how these laws came to be. And mm-hmm. I think if we were to begin to ask the question how did this all happen? It would not be an assumption any longer that it's supposed to be this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These were decisions that were made by actual people in a context in order to solve what they perceived to be an actual problem. Um, for example, the first race law in, uh, in, in Maryland came two years after Virginia, and it was solving the problem of white women marrying and having children with enslaved African men. And there were about 600 um, mixed-race children that were born of that kind of coupling in, uh, in Maryland and, uh, and in Virginia, in, uh, sorry, Maryland and Delaware um, in the colonial period. So where do you you know, we look at these race laws or we look at, we look at racial hierarchy rather and mm-hmm. think, oh, well, this is just, you know, it's kind of part of the human condition. We're always going to do this. Da, 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 da. We have all kinds of explanations, but no, this happened because of a law that was passed mm-hmm. and other laws about 
like really about 10 different laws that were passed over a period of 50 years in order to solve problems on the ground. And the problems were threats to the supremacy of the men of European descent. That was what they were trying to solve. Mm -hmm. Now we can look at this and we can go, is that really who we want to be? Because Mm -hmm. we've never fully, we've never fully um, turned from that way of being together in the world. And so now we have an opportunity. We're at a juncture in our, in our American history. We're in a transition period, we believe, um, where we have choices to make. So I knew that the, there are lots of people writing books on reparations. There are lots of people writing books on race, and usually they're pretty forensic. Um, I knew that the most powerful way that we could, we could actually begin to have this conversation in a deeper way, in a way that, that could shift things is through the power of story. So that's why I decided to leverage the power of my own family's story for us to help, under, help us to help us understand America's story better, to make us um, better equipped to design America's future story, to say, mm-hmm. who do we really want to be? And then to move that direction. Yeah. You, you say um, early on in your book that um, the belief shapes the world, but story shapes belief. That's right. Yes. Um, and, and I think, you know, when I think about you digging up your family story, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> one thing you're doing there, well, let's see, when, how do I put this? I mean, I, on the one hand, sometimes we, we have a, we have a belief, then we go looking for a story that will shore up that belief. Right. Yes. Yes. And mm-hmm. I say, look for a story or invent a story or, you know, there are all kinds of ways to, to approach that. Mm-hmm. And then Twist there the story. is the approach to say, what is the story? What is the story? What happened? Yeah. What happened? Right. That's right. What, what is, what is reality? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and story is a way to get at reality, but also it's a way to avoid reality. Mm-hmm. And I, mean, I think we see that all the time right now. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have, um, we have stories being spun about who we are right now. I mean, right now we are living in a period where people have given up on actually find, trying to find fact and uh-huh. instead have actually gravitated toward the story they can hear quickly on social media. And that's where we're getting all those conspiracy theories that are really endangering the whole world yeah. with the COVID pandemic um, and vaccines and stories about vaccines. And there's story is shaping literally life and death choices for our world right now. But what if we were to start not with the spun story on, a, on Facebook or on some social media, we were to start actually digging into our own family histories uh-huh. through the census documents, through the, the, the um, naturalization documents, through military. That's, then we know this happened. Uh-huh. And then we can actually ask the question, now, what are the implications of the fact that this happened on us right now? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's my process. I mean, that, that's my process in terms of my faith. And it's my process, you know, in terms of, in terms of this book. Yeah. Um, I think my faith process actually might have even shaped the way that I, I approached history itself. Because my faith process is to look at the scripture and say, what does it actually say? Not what do I hope it says or think it says. Yeah. What is it actually saying? Mm-hmm. And then from there, what are the implications? 
yeah, on yeah. right now. Yeah. I mean, the essence of ideology is to say, I've got this thing that I, I need, want to be true, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, and I dig around for the, for the, the evidence. For the justification than, of it or yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the evidence that might support it, even, right. even in the face of evidence that doesn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I found the power of family story to be incredible because it subverts. Um, it really does have the power to subvert the meta narratives that are spun in order to move um, uh, democratic voters in one way or another um, mm-hmm. to to venerate, for example, the story of um, of the lost cause in America, right. Right? right? As opposed to the story of um, of people who who were fighting in order to maintain their economic um, livelihood uh-huh. in the face of absolute subjugation that was necessary for their livelihood to be maintained in that way. Mm-hmm. So you have people of European descent who were subjugating, exploiting killing, raping in order to maintain their economic livelihood. That happened. That happened. And they legislated in order to keep that happening. So what does it look like then to shift that story, to twist that story, to cover over that story, to dress up that story after the Civil War? It looks like the lost cause story and the monuments that are put all over the, all over the country that totally erase the, 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 the cause of, the, of the, the rise of the Confederacy. But you know what? All you need to do is to go back to the actual primary documents. Go back to the secession papers. They will tell you why people seceded. They will tell you. Um, they will, and you go back to where were your ancestors at that time? Did they own slaves? If they didn't, what were they doing? Were they the overseers? Were they working with? How did they live in this time? Did mm-hmm. they benefit from it? Were they some of the people who ran the banks that financed it? Um, were they, were they um, abolitionists at this time? How did they interact with this central organizing economic law and legal, legal web of laws? that shaped life at that time. So once you do that research and you find your family's story in that context, you have the power to subvert the larger narrative mm-hmm. yeah. and, to, and to clarify it, to correct it. Uh, now, it wasn't easy for you to dig up your family's story. No, right? it wasn't. Um, and as you say in your book, that wasn't really an accident, that it's hard for people of color to... to find out. <laughs> Tell me about that. Let's talk about that. Well, there was a, there was a moment in Maryland's history um, in the beginning of the 1700s, early 1700s, when the legislature and uh, Maryland's legislature made a decision to trace and um, to document the births and deaths of Maryland's colonial citizens, the citizens of the colony of Maryland. But they made a decision at that time that free black people and enslaved black people would not have their deaths and, um, and births charted. And they simply, there was no real reason. They just said, it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. We don't, it's too much trouble. Right. So from that point forward, 
We just didn't have ourselves documented, our, our family histories documented. And I'm not sure if there was, you know, some other grand scheme. I know the impact of it, the impact of it was that our histories were then hidden. Yeah. The only way that your history was not hidden, that it came to light, is if there was some kind of a legal judgment against you, so you ended up in court, or if you were passed down in a will, if you were enslaved, and, and your, your owner, your, your supposed owner, passed you down in a will with a, with a bed or with a dresser to their next generation, mm-hmm. um, then your name would appear in a will. Or um, on a tax inventory, right? So in a tax inventory, mm-hmm. you might actually see the name, but then only the first name of an enslaved person. And you kind of have to guess according to ages about whether or not they're actually there. But you see in the very beginnings, in the, in the foundations of this nation's history, there was a decision made that people of European descent would have their histories traced, but mm-hmm. people of African descent would not. That is part of the privilege of whiteness. It's part of the privilege that was baked in in the 1700s, the early 1700s. So you have that, and that that was one of the establishing um, that was one of the establishing laws and constructs that created the uh, the mist that surrounds mm. people of African descent's history. It's like a, it's, it's like a fog. We get the fog of, of our historical record. Um, the only way that you can actually trace solidly is if your descendant descends from a white woman. Mm. If your descendant descends from a white woman, um, then the laws back then said that you could not be enslaved. You could only be indentured. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you were indentured, but that also meant that you were, you were set free at a point and at that point of freedom, then you were able to be tracked through tax records and, and, you know, if somebody pulled you into court or you took somebody to court, then you were. So I found those mm-hmm. kind of records for my family. It was a 30 year process of doing mm-hmm. this research, starting from a family tree that didn't even have names, only had Great-grandpop lived around this time. Great-great-grandpop lived around this time. That's really all, that's all I knew. And those names got filled in over time as I did interviews with my mom and my, my dad and my, my aunties and uncles. Um, and then the Ancestry.com opened up so much, I mean, immediately. And then DNA really helped us <laughs> and, and is helping us still to connect a lot of the dots that are still kind of, until still kind of shaded. Part of the shade or the, the, um, the, the fog of identity comes in also because of government-instituted um, policies that were meant to, um, to eradicate um, Native identity on American soil. Mm-hmm. So the whole, um, you know, I'm one quarter, I'm one half, I'm one eighth Native American, that all came as a government construct. That's not the way that Native people used to identify who they are. But it was, it was something that was used to, to do political genocide on Native people, to erase them as they mixed in with people of European descent and Black descent, African descent. Then they would have to identify as only one half as opposed to being Native. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that was, it's an effective political genocide. It erased um, it erased millions of people off the rolls. Um, 
So the fog of identity of people who were subjugated served the interest of white men because their identity was clear. They're from Europe. We are now white. Um, The very first census only had one race on it, white. And and that's right. There was no other race on that first census. The only other identities were slave and other, Mm -hmm. 1790. And then in 1800, the next census, it was um, black free and black slave, right? So it, and, and, but in all of those times from 1790 forward, the only racial identity, talk about a story you're telling through the census, the only racial identity that has never changed since 1790 is white because it consolidates power among people of European descent. So you're not going to mess with that. Instead, you'll um, disaggregate blackness. You'll have African-American and Caribbean-American. You'll, you'll disaggregate Asian-Americans and have literally on the census, Chinese, Japanese, Hmong. I mean, there's, it's all disaggregated except for white. You will never find a racial categorization on the census that says Irish American, Swedish American, I'm Swedish. You won't, you won't find that, but you do find African American, even though that's not a race, it's an ethnic group. Why? Because it disaggregates power. Yeah. You you say that um, the construct of race severs people from their roots, their families, their stories. There's this, there's this disjointure. Yes. Um, Elsewhere, you say the impact of colonization is fragmentation, dismemberment. And the, pro- the project that you're talking about here um, is, you know, remembering just means taking those dismembered parts and re putting them back putting together. Putting them back together. That's right. Yeah. And I think that this, honestly, it's one of the things that has caused our current moment. We're, we're in a moment right now where our nation is facing the possibility of the demise of our democracy. And the reason for that is because. There's a large contingent of people of European descent who see coming, they see the day coming when people of European descent will no longer be the majority of people in America. And as a result, will not naturally will not be the majority of leaders in America over time. And they see that and they're trying to maintain that assumption of white power. And that makes sense, right? Whiteness exists as a construct. It was constructed by white men in order to determine who has power to rule on this land. That's why it exists. But what if people of European descent were to say, no longer are we going to root our identity in the story of whiteness, which is a young story, which has no roots. It's just simply about power and who has it. But rather, we're going to root our story in what actually happened, how we actually got here, where we're actually from, and what happened there to move our ancestors onto this land. I think that there could be a shift from from, uh, the assumption of the supremacy of whiteness and the grabbing at power in order to maintain that, that supremacy, that power, to a letting go and a becoming fully human, resting one's, one's feet on the ground where the rest of the human family stands, holding hands in community together. What would it look like for people of European descent to join that story? Um, 
I love I love that way of talking about it. You're, you're a we, we've got so you've you've talked about some false stories that shape our beliefs, whether that's the lost cause or manifest destiny. I mean, we have yeah. done this in this half hour, but but it's yeah, it's in, in the book. book. Yeah. yeah. Um, but another story um, that I'd love to hear you talk about is the story of the beloved community. Yeah. Um, it ex- it's exceedingly relevant to the new story that you're interested in, that, that I'm interested in. A lot of us are interested in, in telling going forward. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that, that story, the story of the beloved community. Well, the beloved community is, um, is a way that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. described the kingdom of God, really. Um, Can I ask you and, a quick, did, did he originate that term or was he picking that up from somebody else? Honestly, he might have picked it up from someone else. I think he probably did, but I, I trace it back. I read it with him right. and heard him speaking about it. So for me, it's rooted in, in his thinking. And I want to just say that when he thought about it, when he talked about the beloved community, what he was talking about was a, a world within which poverty would not be tolerated. And oppression would not be tolerated because the image of God in all people would be would be um, elevated. We would understand the significance of the fact that we are all made in the divine image. And what that means is that we are all, according to the first page of the Bible, all called to exercise stewardship of the world, mm-hmm. agency within the world to shape the world. And so the beloved community is a community of a world community, a global community, also a national community that shapes its laws and, and um, uh, constructs its social um, ways that we, we live together in the world in a way that all can flourish, mm-hmm. all have access to great education, all have access to safe housing, all have access to healthy food, all have access to to the, the, the education that would prepare them to be leaders in the world or to live responsibly within the world, to contribute to the world. That is not the world we live in right now. The world we live in right now is one where only the few have been set up to be the noble class, right? Like that, which was transferred from Europe to America. Most, um, most emphatically seen in the construct of, of slaveocracy. Um, and, and then the rest are made to kind of fight between themselves for scraps. Mm-hmm. And we see that, that story trying to repeat itself again and again and again. And right now we really are literally at a moment in America where we really have to choose who are we going to be? Because we have a possibility, we have a chance now to choose another way of being together in the world. But if, if we don't, we're going to continue down that same road that created the first race laws, that created the hierarchy of human belonging that lives in America, and we're going to reinforce it. And you know what it's going to get us? It's going to get us the demise of our democracy. Mm-hmm. That's what, it will, that's what it, will, it will do. So what does it look like for us to, to build the beloved community? It looks like telling the truth about how we got here. It looks like reparation. It looks like doing what it will take to make things well for those who have been living life for generations under a boot, under a knee. It will look like forgiveness of the things that cannot be repaired. 
and cannot be restored. And it will look like going inward for all of us and asking, how have these constructs, these laws, these ways of being together impacted me in my psyche, in my body? How have I been absorbing trauma from these laws and these contexts, these, these, these situations that these laws have created in my life and my family's life? For example, the decision that Nixon made and Nixon's legislative director made um, back in the 1970s to, to launch the drug war, right? They said, we're going to launch the drug war. And um, Ehrlichman, um, his legislative director, actually at the time, um, he confessed in, 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 a, in an interview, I believe in 1995, he confessed in an interview that the drug war was never about drugs. It was actually about Nixon um, cracking down on communities that he thought were political enemies to him, including the black community and those liberal hippies. Mm -hmm. And so by launching a drug war, by targeting them and by pumping drugs into their communities, he then gained justification to come and crack down on them, break up their families, break up their community and put them in jail, like load up the jails with them. That was Nixon. Reagan carried that story forward with his drug war. And in both cases, those drug wars impacted my family. Because drugs were pumped into our South Philly area where I live right now, my uncle dropped dead in his bedroom one block from where I sit today in in the 1970s. Why? Because he died of a heroin overdose. Yes, he chose to trade drugs. But yes, also, all of his friends um, were, were dealing with the reality that drugs were infiltrating the area and so, so available. And they had never had that kind of access. They didn't know. They didn't know what it could do to them. So most of the community just died from it. And then by the 80s, you had crack now being pumped into our neighborhoods. This is all documented. And as a result, my grandmother died at the hands of a crack addict who was trying to pilfer her from everything that she had. So policies are personal. They have personal impacts on us. What couldn't have happened if drugs were never pumped into this neighborhood in the 1970s? My uncle could still be here. How could he have contributed to the world? He was a songwriter. He was a singer. He literally has a song out there that he wrote, and it's on the B on the B side of the record, you know, um, uh, out in the '60s. What couldn't have happened to this community if crack had not been pumped in here? And by the 1990s and 2000s, this had become a war zone. It was not only just broken windows, but no doors on houses. It was absolutely gutted because of community choices. Um, Government, Philadelphia government choices to neglect the area. And now you have gentrification. This cycle has happened all over the country because of choices made. Why? To benefit what is now the, quote, noble class in America, white men who, are, who have been set up to lead from the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. What couldn't we do if we repented from that way of being together in the world? Yeah. I, I love the, your discussion of the word Tav 
mm-hmm. where you say yeah, it's kind of excellent that ha- an excellence that happens between things between yes. and not an excellence that is that happens within yeah that's right it we were not I, I mean I'm blown away by this but you know we have been told that the project of our lives is to become perfect as Christians it's one of the things that we've been told mm-hmm. be perfect as as God is perfect right but that's a misreading of that text in Matthew 5 um it's not it's not be perfect as in as in you yourself it's actually love perfectly that's really what that text means and tob is um is that word at the end of the um of Genesis 1 uh, where God looks around at the end and says this is very good and tob means good and meod means very and you see tob actually used six other times before that so now you have it used for a seventh time which is the it's the ah. Thing for excellence, like the symbol of excellence and perfection, right within the Hebrew culture, but perfection here exists between things because tob is a word that literally exists. the The Hebrews understood it to exist between things, so goodness exists between things. It is the tie that binds us together. It is about our ethics. Mm. It is not about our personal perfection, and it changes everything to understand that. It really does. Then, no longer is sin, no longer is sin about me not being perfect. Sin is now anything that breaks the relationships that God declared Tob Me'od in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so good. And, and when I think of excellence in terms of individual, I'm, I'm tempted to, to pursue my excellence at the expense of somebody else's excellence or my freedom at the cost of someone else's freedom or my flourishing at the cost of someone else's flourishing. And, and here's the thing. I just want to say this. Sometimes you're not even thinking about the other person at all. You're sure. just trying to be excellent. You're just trying yeah. to, right? And, and what that looks like, and especially through some, some of the theology that's come down through Europe, um, Calvinism, as it came into American, the American space mixed with Puritanism, became about... Um, you know, defining the elect as the ones who are prosperous. So then how do you look at the slave? You must then look at the slave and say, well, they must not be among the elect. You know, it must be God's predestination that they're enslaved. That is exactly the, the logic that led the Southern Baptist Convention to become a convention. Um, they said, well, who are we to argue with God if God has made these people slaves? Predestination, right? Um, the same is true when you look after um, um, after the Civil War and, and um, into Reconstruction, Black people flourished because the laws protected them. But then with the Compromise of, of 1877, mm-hmm. that protection was lifted and a reign of terror came. And from that point forward, during that reign of terror, the story was reshaped. It was shaped that, oh, look at them, they're poor. They, they don't have anything. They're, they're poor and they're in rags. Therefore, they must not be Christian. They must not be among the elect. So it's, it's the ways that we have used the story and, and abused and twisted the story of God um, to not only benefit, um, not only subjugate others. Sometimes it really, we weren't trying to subjugate others. Sometimes we were simply trying to justify our own, um, our own uh, uh, quote, flourishing. But I would say that's not flourishing because flourishing can't happen where some people are subjugated and others have abundance. 
flourishing happens when all, yeah. when all have um, access to that abundance. Yeah. And, you know, as you said, it's, it's not, it's not flourishing to be in a world that's not flourishing. Mm-hmm. I, I saw a, a rooster once and it, it was a rainy day and it was this nasty coop, just mm-hmm. chicken droppings everywhere. And wow. it was a white rooster. I didn't think about that, but anyway, he would be a white rooster and he had just mud and chicken mess all over him. And he was up on a little, up on a little a hill within the coop, just crowing away. Like I am the boss of this crappy little coop. Wow. And, yeah. And he, okay, well good for him, but I think I'd rather, I mean, what in paradise law thinks that he'd rather rule in hell than, than serve in heaven. Mm. And that's mm. bad thinking. And this this rooster would rather be the boss of a really ratty coop than well I don't, I don't know what was going on inside that. Rooster. I like that. That's that's I like that. That's a good way to think about but, it. It's but true. You invite in your book toward the end. Uh, you invite people of European descent to maybe consider that there's a better way to live, right? Yeah. That, that maybe a world in which. Um, uh, you know, a, a world of flourishing is is better than being at the top of a heap of a world that's not flourishing. That's right. It's, it's better a world of flourishing where we all get to be simply human and make decisions together, together about how we will live together in the world. Um, decisions that help all to flourish is much better than ones who war for supremacy against God. Yeah. trying to control the image of God and subjugate images of God on earth in order to make oneself feel better. Well, then you really are at war with God. And, mm-hmm. and that's not a good place to be because you can't win. You're not going to win that. <laughs> Ultimately, you're going to lose. So yeah. you, can, you, can, you can do that. You can do that. But, you know, the days are numbered. Or you can lay down your arms against God and God's image and people who are not like you and you can join in with the, with the community of the rest of creation and, and the rest of humanity. Join hands. Be simply human. And let's, let's figure out how we all want to live together anew. Yeah. I love it. Thank you for that. Well, we are just, we're a few weeks out from the death of Archbishop Bishop Desmond Tutu. Yeah. And he figures in in your your book and his i i wanted to hear you talk about that word ubuntu that Mm. that he used and talked about well ubuntu is um is a a concept that comes from the continent of africa and it it says in multiple actually multiple different cultures but um in one in particular it's it's ubuntu and it it really says i am because you were i am because we are In other words, I can't exist outside of your existence. My flourishing is directly connected to your flourishing. If you are not flourishing, therefore neither am I. Um, And it it calls for us, it demands actually, that as we ask the question of how we want to live together, we don't only look for our own interests, but we absolutely seek the interests of our neighbors and the interests of the other, the interests of even our enemies, because those, and unless all of our interests are met, then our, our, our future is going to be full of violence, full of domination, full of, um, of fear, full of 
an ethic of fear, but Ubuntu calls us to an ethic of love, mm-hmm. an ethic of welcome, an ethic of, of hospitality, an ethic of abundance, and, um, and seeking the well-being of all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, um, in, oh shoot, what's the, the book of the, I'm now drawing a blank, uh, um, Patton's book about South Africa, Cry the Blood of Country. Oh, he yeah. talks about those white neighborhoods, um, that are so prosperous and yet they're gate, like they're, they're gated to, to protect their prosperity and it, yeah. it's really them. It's they're gating themselves. They're they're caging themselves in. They think themselves of ca- of caging the world out. And they're really caging yeah. themselves in. Well, that's funny. I talked about that actually in in Fortune, and it was that struck me when I when I went there. I was there in January of 2017, and and then I think I was there again in in, in 2016. Actually, January 2016, and then again in in, in uh, March of 2017. But when I went, I was blown away by the inequity in mm-hmm. Cape Town. Cape Town at the time, I don't know if it's still the case, but at the time, it was the most inequitable city on the planet. Mm-hmm. And that is saying a lot because mm-hmm. we have some serious inequity in America, right? But in one city, in one city, you had people who were literally thousands and thousands of people who were living in black townships where their homes were just a tin literally a kit, a tin kit that you can get at a store and then you nail it together mm. and that's your home mm. in a hovel full of thousands of these tin kits and that is called the Black Townships. Next to, literally not, not too far from the land that was taken by, by white um, settlers, um, colonial settlers, and that like um, Camps Bay, right? So it is green and it is lush and it is rolling hills that overlook the ocean. And every single garage door was lined with gold. <laughs> really? You not, there was, they had gold. And I'm not talking about gold paint. I'm talking about actual gold that lined the garage doors. And every single house, every one of those houses had razor wire yeah. around the house so that people couldn't get in. And I had never seen before in my life, I had never seen razor wire around individual homes. I mean, you see razor wire around prisons. You see razor wire around industrial complexes because people don't want them to get in and tinker, but not around individual homes. And it really made me think who, who is imprisoned here? Yeah. 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 Imprisoned by, by the inequity, by the choices that they've made about how they will live together in space. And those choices led to deep inequity. And one thing we know is that violence does not follow poverty. Violence follows inequity Hmm. on the planet. Wherever there is the greatest inequity, you will find the greatest violence. And so domination becomes the ethic of the space. So we will never get to the beloved community as long as we have deep inequity in our world. Well... Thank you for that <laughs> for that reminder, um, Lisa. I always end these conversations with the question: Who are the writers who make you want to write? I'd love to hear your. Who is it that, that when you read them you say, "I want to go write something"? Mm. Well, I have to say, I was just talking about this with somebody else earlier today. 
I, I've been deeply shaped by um, the Black women writers of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Okay. You know, so writers like Gloria Naylor, who wrote Women of Brewster Place, mm-hmm. and Toni Morrison, and Maya Angelou. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean absolutely, um, absolutely shaped by them. And then I have to say, I'm also profoundly um, shaped by the writers in my own writers group now. Like we started uh-huh. a writers group uh, through Freedom Road. Um, you can find us at freedomroad.us and just look up the Institute and under the Institute, you'll find the writers group. Um, but that group has been going now for two years. Uh-huh. And I'm just proud to say every single Saturday we come together, we write for three hours, and then we listen to each other's writing for another hour, three minutes each, giving one minute of feedback each time and soaking in the writing of the amazing, awesome writing of these fabulous writers has has made my writing much better. So uh-huh. I know Fortune was written in that writer's group. Fortune uh-huh. was written literally in that context. Really? And it was inspired by the ways that, that, the ter- that people turn phrases in that group, the ways mm-hmm. that people... Um, I learned how to, how to um, bring a scene to life by listening to the writing that's happening in that group. And we have now, I have a little brag a little bit, we have seven books that have been written out of that writing group. That's, 60, 61 articles. Hello, somebody. So <laughs> that, is, that is wonderful. I'm so glad to yeah, hear that. Thank you. Um, and are y'all y'all doing this on Zoom? You're not in the same room for four hours. Yeah, we're on Zoom. It is, it is literally a Zoom thing. And we, we come together from across the world. It's a global writers group. So we have really? folks in England, we have folks in Australia, we're folks all over the place who are in, in all over the United States. Um, and a couple actually in Brazil who were considering it, but I don't think they were able to do it because of the language thing. Yeah. And so we'll figure that out eventually. But, um, and some in, actually in South Africa as well. Um, we have folks who are coming in from all over the place and writing down their stories. Yeah. And, and you can't do that in person. You have to do it on Zoom. And also in the middle of a pandemic, which is what launched this, we thought, uh-huh. well, this is the perfect time and space to launch it in. So yeah, we, we just come together. We turn off our, you know, our video and our, we mute our screens. Yeah. We write in the background for three hours and then we come together and we read our stuff to each other for an hour. I, uh, I have a, I run a, a membership for writers and and we do something similar once a wow. week for an hour and uh, it's really interesting how I don't know why it matters it that you're sitting at your desk but knowing that that there's somebody on the you know other people that you know doing it at the same time it makes a difference for some reason so so true it really does I mean I really I could not have written Fortune without that accountability of that group and mm-hmm. also the feedback the invaluable mm-hmm. feedback that they gave as well yeah. Um, I'm amazed at everybody. So you spend an hour giving people four four minutes per person. So so you can get through about 15 people in an hour. Mm-hmm. But we we break down into small groups oh, so that each group does it as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I'm, I'm, I love hearing about that. I'm so glad y'all do that. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate well, Lisa that. Sharon Harper, this has been great. Thank you, and thank you for for your book. And uh, it, it's there were 50 other things I was hoping we'd be able to talk about, but we. <laughs> We didn't have all day. It's so. rich. It's definitely a rich ride, right? When you're when you're reading it, because you're reading ten generations of stories mm-hmm. and how they connect to right now. Yeah. And so I just want to say thank you so much for the honor of reading it and um, sharing it with your audience. Thank you. Thank you. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room. 
where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.